Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 193 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. It's turned frosty outside, I've more of a rower chat and an update of other beekeeping stuff to keep you amused, if only for a short while. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm delighted to say that our podcast is now sponsored in part by Simon the Beekeeper. Making beekeeping an affordable hobby for everyone, Simon the Beekeeper provides the best value beekeeping equipment possible, along with a super fast delivery service. The bees won't wait, so their customers don't have to either. Visit the website at www.simonthebeekeeper.co.uk. Hi everyone, a very happy new year to you all, but look, it's already one week into the new year and the new season will be upon us before you know it. I better get my skates on, so much to do and seemingly so little time. The new year has brought an altogether more wintry feel to the weather. This week we've gone from temperatures in the mid-teens to minus 4 or 5 Celsius. I'm guessing that's around 28 degrees Fahrenheit. Frost on the ground and I've been out finally getting the oxalic acid treatments into the hives. The first trip was out to the farm apiaries where pretty much everything went as planned. One comedic moment when the ranger in four-wheel drive threatened to get stuck in the mud. Steph chuckling and me getting stressed. It seems Steph was chuckling at the likelihood of having to get out of the truck and try to push. Now I know she's been doing some weight training but I'm not sure even Steph could shove the ranger out of the rut we were in. We agreed that now might be a good time to put a spade or shovel in the truck for next time just in case you understand. The forecast looks set to stay cooler for the next week. I have one more apiary to tackle with the first treatment of oxalic acid and as this week's podcast goes live I'll be out and about doing just that. Spanning three weeks the hope is to knock back the varroa populations to a minimal level so that as the colonies get more varroa visitors in the spring the starting point is so low that it doesn't become critical until the very late summer at the earliest which is when we'll begin the next round of treatments again with either a thymol or amitraz based product. There's an awful lot of work to take place before then and getting these mite levels down is vital to a fast start in spring. I've had several questions sent in to me regarding Varroa and the treatments used and when they're used and the reasons why we use them so I figured I could round up some of that here today before the next batch of questions arrive. I've discussed the three-week treatment process before but I just wanted to explain the context with the life cycle of the Varroa mite so that you can understand the process of the extended treatment period and why it's so effective. To recap oxalic acid only kills the mites that are exposed to it, not those sealed in the cells. Mites that are wandering around the cluster tucked into the underside of the workers or on their backs as they're often seen and these are the mites that the oxalic acid will kill. So it stands to reason that if you need a period when all the mites are in the open and not hidden in any sealed cells, we call this a broodless period. 
I may have missed a broodless period back in November. I think I mentioned that before. Certainly a few hives that I checked didn't have any brood, at least none that I could see, and that would have been a great time to carry out the treatment. The other benefit of treating with oxalic acid in late autumn and over winter is that there are not many, if any, drones. Drones move from colony to colony during the active season, and with them they take varroa mites carried as passengers to their next destination and ready to populate perhaps a previously mite-free colony. On this point, it does mean even if you believe you have no varroa mites in your hive, the situation can change quickly in the spring and into the summer. Bringing it back to the current position, winter colonies with some brood, it makes sense to try to eliminate as many mites as possible. And that's why I'm using the three-week treatment system this year. Any mites that emerge after the first treatment will hang around in the exposed adult bee cluster for a week or so before entering another brood cell to begin the process all over again. And this is where the weekly treatments come in. We're attempting to catch the varroa after it's emerged from its developmental cell and before it enters another brood cell to begin the egg laying and mating process again. Carried out over a three week period, it should catch most, if not all, of the varroa mites in the colony. What we're trying to do is prevent that population explosion that is likely to cause significant problems for our honeybee colonies going into the summer. I found some really interesting facts about varroa on the Bee Aware website, and I'll link it into the podcast notes as normal. But for now, I wanted just to paraphrase some of the information that they give to demonstrate why winter oxalic acid treatment is so effective. Think in terms of the growth of the mite population. Here we're talking about the reproductive rate, or R number, and I'm pretty sure you'll be familiar with that these days. And I'll use the figure given by the Be Aware article of an average of 1.6 adult mites emerging, on average, from a worker brood cell. Remember, we're in midwinter, so we wouldn't expect any drone brood, although sometimes there is. So varroa mites will enter a cell once the larvae are around five or six days old. Once inside a brood cell and it's capped, the mites are trapped until the adult bee emerges, which we all know is around 21 days. Allowing for the fact that the mite didn't get into the cell until day six, let's say, that leaves the mite trapped for a further 15 days. A single mite population emerges as 1.6 mites plus the mother adult, giving us a population of 2.6 mites. Two weeks later, they're at it again, and another round of egg laying and mating occurs, and our population of mites grows, each adult mite producing on average 1.6 mites. That's 2.6 times 1.6, which gives us a new population of 4.16. This perhaps takes us through into February. The next life cycle gives us 4.16 mites times 1.6, that's 6.7. It's now late February, and another mating sees the number grow, but not massively. 10 mites becomes 17 mites in March, becomes 29 mites sometime around early April, maybe 46 mites in late April or early May, 74 in June, maybe 118 late June or early July, 
189 mites for the peak of summer until finally we get to just over 300 as we head into late summer and our varroa treatments again. That's just 11 life cycles from our first single varroa mite in this fictitious colony. But what if I don't treat with oxalic acid and I have, say, six or seven varroa mites in my colony as we go into the new year? Using the same reproductive rate number of an average of 1.6 adult female mites emerging, the numbers for our population grows as follows. Now let's say we have seven mites, just to highlight the potential. Cycle one equals 11.2. Cycle two is near 18 mites. Cycle three becomes 28.7. Four is 45.8. The fifth mating is 73.4. The sixth is 117. The seventh is 188. The eighth, 300, it just gets bigger and bigger. Nine is getting high at 480. Life cycle 10 produces a whopping 768. And finally, the 11th sees the mite population grow to 1228. And this doesn't take into account that in drone cells, the varroa produce on average 2.6 adults instead of 1.6. Now, I'm not going to go through all the numbers again, but if the mites used drone cells from April onwards, we'd end up with a population in the first example of something like three and a half thousand mites. And in the second example, a population of incredibly a massive 36,000 or more. And that surely spells disaster for any colony. Now, these figures are just examples, and I know that there are a lot of variables things that can impact both the varroa population and the honeybee population in both a positive and negative way. But I do think it does show how quickly things can get out of control if varroa mites are left unchecked. Again, I understand there are colonies out there considered to be hygienic or varroa resistant, but I do feel the majority of us still have to take matters into our own hands to help our colonies manage these pests. Just be aware that varroa populations may seem small in the spring, but can quickly develop and get out of control in the height of the season, and is most obviously apparent in some of our biggest colonies. There are other methods to positively affect the honeybee colony, whilst at the same time negatively impacting the mite population. These are more mechanical, integrated pest management techniques, physical methods if you like, such as drone brood removal, or in fact complete brood removal. This involves removing just drone brood in the first instance, relying on the fact that Varroa will preferentially choose drone cells to reproduce in. The second option gives a total brood break, as you're removing all the brood from the colony, and with it any Varroa mites hidden in those cells. But don't forget there may well be phoretic mites, so you probably won't remove all of the mite population, but you'll certainly reduce the numbers back down to a level that the colony will be able to cope with. Timing of any brood removal is really down to your own plans as a beekeeper and of the season that you're planning. I wouldn't carry out brood removal too early in the season because that will likely inhibit the growth of the colony at a point where they want plenty of new bees to help provide resources for the coming months. 
Likewise, if you want a large summer foraging force, you may not want to remove brood in the weeks leading up to your major summer nectar flow. Perhaps immediately after the spring flow would be good, allowing the colony to re-establish a large brood nest prior to the June lull in forage, but before the main flow. Or how about immediately after the summer flow, instead of using a chemical treatment? Sometimes, though, you have no control over the when. If you see a colony struggling because of the varroa population, you really, really have to do something. Or wait a couple of weeks, and that could signal the death of the colony. Swarms are naturally broodless. When they're first introduced to a new home, maybe that would be a good time to treat them. Whenever you decide to use the brood removal technique, just bear in mind the position the colony will be in, and if there's no forage, you may well need to feed them. If you are using any varroicide, there inevitably comes the question of what to do with the packaging and treatment carrier that you've put into the hives, and what to do with it after the treatment period is over. The Apivar treatment we used this year uses EVA strips to transport the active ingredient into the hive, and having contacted my local council, I'm told that these can be disposed of in small quantities, such that I use, in normal waste disposal. If you're in any doubt, you need to contact your local authority responsible for waste management and find out what you should do. I'm sure that whatever method you decide to use this season, the varroa mites are in for a hard time. Keep those populations low and your bees will reward you for it. In other news, and by that I mean truck and trailer news, I've had a reply from one of the agencies I contacted about the law regarding towing my trailer. You'll remember I've been concerned about whether I'm legal towing the 3.5 tonne rated trailer that I recently bought as my ranger can only legally tow 2.8 tonnes in total. Well, the agency concerned isn't really an agency, rather it's the I4 Williams company that made the trailer in the first place. I had a response to my question and they say, and I quote, providing that the combined physical weight, brackets laden or unladen, close brackets, of both the trailer and vehicle do not exceed the gross train weight specified by the vehicle manufacturer, you would be fine to tow, unquote. Now, although they don't give me chapter and verse of the law that specifically states this, I do feel I'm a lot closer to the answer and my initial thoughts that I'm not breaking the law are on the right track. I'm not going to leave the question there though. I still have the government agency and the local police force that I'm waiting to hear back from and my local member of parliament. I guess they're all still on their Christmas and New Year breaks. Nice for some, eh? Do get in touch if you have any questions, and while it's a relatively quiet period, I'll try to do my best to answer them as quickly as I can. If you're part of my Coaching Plus group and you'd like a one-to-one Zoom session to discuss any individual issues or plans for the coming season, do send me a message and we'll get something in the diary. If you're not in the Coaching Plus group, head over to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey, and check out the subscription tiers. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you all have a fantastic beekeeping 2022 and I'll catch up with you all again next time. Just so you don't forget, I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet. (laughs) 